This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. At some point, an unbeliever has probably challenged your faith on the so-called problem of evil. If God's so good and powerful, why doesn't he put an end to all this pain and suffering? Well, Christians offer a variety of answers, not all of them satisfying to skeptics or even to other Christians. But have you ever wondered about the alternative? Is there a more hopeful option? What do we gain by losing the possibility of a good God whose purposes transcend our understanding? Well, we gain an unlivable despair. The problem of evil then runs both directions. One of my favorite defenders of the faith today is Gavin Ortland. He's senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He's also the author of many books, including Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. It was published in 2020 by Crossway and the Gospel Coalition. His latest book, where he discusses the problem of evil, is Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism, published by Baker Academic. In the same apologetic book, Gavin deconstructs arguments against Christianity while also displaying the beauty of God. Here's an example from the book. He says this, the plain and resilient fact that we all must reckon with is simply this. We live in an intricate and mysterious world, and every possible explanation for that fact evokes wonder and amazement. There is no worldview available on the market that is entirely rational and explicable in terms of observable physical causes. If you don't like God, you're probably stuck with zillions of parallel worlds for which you lack any conclusive evidence. Things are metaphysically interesting any way you slice them. Well, I describe Gavin's book as metaphysically interesting (laughs) itself. And so Gavin joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss our deepest intuitions, beauty, creation, love, and all kinds of other good stuff. Gavin, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Hey, thanks for having me. I feel like you're long overdue to make an appearance on Gospel Bound. Years of working together, and you're simply one of the best people I see out there writing and speaking and and, uh, and filming on this stuff. So why with this book, why do you say this book comes from your heart more than anything else you've ever written? I think it's because partly in the effort to help people who are deconstructing or struggling, and then partly having been through some of those kind of two mild seasons of that myself, just angst, working through challenges. I know what that feels like, and I know the emotional implications. And that's really what is at the heart of this book, is saying, if the gospel's true, what does that mean for our our deepest longings? What does that mean for 
the meaning of everything. <laughs> and if it's not true, what does that mean? And I'm just looking down the road, and it's amazing how different naturalism is from the gospel. I would say they are infinitely different. They are as different as can be with respect to the human heart and the longings of the human heart. That touches everything, not just eternal life. It touches how you listen to music now, how you think about the nature of math now, how you think about the way you feel about your children now. It, it touches literally everything. So I think that's why it comes from such a deep place. Now, why do you tell readers, Gavin, that they can trust their deepest intuitions? I, I got to say, I don't think that's the most common apologetic approach I see from Reformed theologians. Um, one of the things you, you write in here is, what if we regard our disgust, immorality, and the intensity of our attraction to love and compassion as a clue? rather than an illusion. So explain what you're doing there apologetically, but also theologically. Well, yeah, because it wouldn't be all intuitions. <laughs> It'd be, uh, what I'm speaking of specifically there is our moral intuitions, and then our aesthetic intuitions, our intuitions of beauty and transcendence. And I'm just talking about the way we experience music and the other arts, and then I think in that part specifically, the way we experience good and evil and this deep instinctive sense within us that good and evil are really binding categories. Because it, again, if you think, if you look down the road with naturalism, it is horrifying. You know, everything that we feel about good and evil is an illusion fobbed off on us by our evolutionary ancestry. And if you really think about that, it really is, it, it sort of vitiates our humanity. You know, it, it cuts to the core of what it, uh, means to be a human being because we have this profound sense of, of morality in us called the conscience. And so that intuition, I think, is a powerful apologetic. And I think that's profoundly biblical to make this appeal that the conscience testifies to the Creator. Is that some of the contrast you try to identify in the book and the moral visions between the older atheists like Friedrich Nietzsche and the newer atheists like Sam Harris? Because it seems like that's something, that perspective is something Nietzsche would have understood and embraced and said, yeah, get on with it. Whereas the newer atheists want to, I don't know, may explain what they're, what they're trying to do, because it seems that they're trying to make a case that you can still be moral without God, which is different, I think, what we've seen in the past. And yet, clearly, it, I mean, I guess maybe explain in part why it doesn't work, but what's the move? How, why did atheists kind of change their, change their tune on this? Yeah, it does seem like there's this difference between what I call the older atheists and the newer atheists. In, in the book, I chronicle um, uh, Nietzsche and then also Jean-Paul Sartre from a little different angle, and then also the character Ivan in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov as three representative examples of this kind of more 19th century or early 20th century ethos of atheism. And it is, from my vantage point, more rigorous and more consistent because they're, they're looking down the road, you know, they're seeing the sense of utter devastation that occurs uh, with the loss of God, because it does mean the loss of an objective morality, that is a morality that's not dependent upon human thought, that exists independently of us, that we discover rather than create, you know, and Sartre is talking about morality as this, as like art, he calls it, you know, it's just something you build. And they see the implications of that. I have more respect for that mentality. The new atheists, some of them, many of them, like Sam Harris, for example, 
it feels like it's a bait and switch because they want to retain so many of these values that are difficult to substantiate in a naturalistic worldview, like uh, humanitarian causes, you know, like there's one point in Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape, where he's talking about, he's having his reader do a thought experiment about imagine the best possible life. And he's saying, oh, you know, you give lots to charity, you're building hospitals around the world, all of these kinds of things, philanthropy and this kind of thing. And I remember thinking, why do you think that, why would you include that as the best life? Those are particular values. And I don't think he's got a sort of ontological basis for those values. I think he kind of smuggles them in the back door, but I don't think they actually play out on atheism. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do in that chapter of the book on morality is just make that argument that you really don't have any sort of solid uh, foundation for an objective morality on atheism. Do you think it could simply be a historical explanation? In other words, the older atheists are arguing before Hitler and the others are arguing after Hitler and after Stalin and after Mao, um, all the incredible killings of atheists who did seem to take these views to their logical conclusion in many ways that there's nothing more than power and the and then i mean and subliminated all of these other considerations especially of beauty to just raw power and control could it just be that the way the moral landscape has shifted post uh, world war ii yeah that's a fascinating uh, point i i'm sure that's a huge factor yeah because you, you can't look at the 20th century and see it you know, more bloody than the previous 19 combined. And uh, you think of the experiment of atheism in the Soviet Union, you know, and just how that, that, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is the bloodiest chapter in all of human history was also totally secular um, with under Stalin and, and others before him. So um, yeah, that seems like that would certainly have to be a factor, right? People can't look back at that and deny the the horror of that. Yeah, there was a kind of secular humanitarianism as seen in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that emerged from that conflict, um, and sort of at the at the dawn of the Cold War to try to to try to create a universal morality that was not explicitly Christian, but was owing everything to Christianity in ways that obviously Nietzsche would have seen. But also in ways that I think this is why Dostoevsky is, which is one of the greatest prophets <laughs> of the post-biblical times, because he could see this coming uh, in revolutionary Russia, which is why he puts all of these atheistic views in Ivan's character um, in that book. I loved that part of your book. But this is actually it's a Dostoevsky theme as well here. But let's go back to something you just uh, you alluded to earlier. But what makes beauty a compelling apologetic appeal? Maybe. Would you say especially now or or always, or how would you explain that? I have the feeling that, and, and my book's taking a little different approach to apologetics, but not a radically different approach. I'm still drawing from all these old arguments. I'm basically drawing from classical arguments, but then putting them in a narrative frame, trying to say, you know, so like the moral argument becomes the drama of the story, and the argument from design becomes the meaning of the story, and Christ, the argument from Christ becomes the hope of the story, and that kind of thing. So I'm, but I'm drawing from these older arguments, but a little different of the way of the approach is that I do think beauty seems to be especially needed right now. And that's just an intuition I have. That's not based on any sociological findings, but I just have the feeling there's so much despair right now. 
And I also have the feeling that people are weary of culture wars and the more absolute type claims and subtlety and winsomeness is important in the way we kind of roll things out, not being overconfident, not being brash. So I'm taking a little different approach. And I, yes, I think beauty is a powerful appeal. In the book, I talk about um, three aspects of our world that, that uh, seem to convey a kind of transcendent meaning, music, math, and love. And the argument from music would be within the family of aesthetic arguments that appeal to beauty. And I went into these very skeptical. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I kind of have an allergic reaction against triumphalistic ways of presenting the faith. So I thought, you know, I want to be as modest as possible. But as what I use them as, as abductive arguments or inferences to the best explanation, I really was surprised at how solid they are. And what convinced me is all of these secular philosophers of music and philosophers of math are getting to a point where they're bumping into the fundamental mysteriousness of the subject matter, because music has this ability to convey meaning in this transcendent way that everyone's wondering, how does it do this? And so, you know, I won't walk through the whole argument right now, but suffice to say, yeah, beauty is incredibly powerful at, at both an emotional level and also at an intellectual level. Everybody's favorite undergraduate Dostoevsky quote out of context, beauty will save the world. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was just a very interesting aspect um, of the book. I mean, I I think it makes a lot of sense intuitively and truly what is the alternative to, you know, to God's goodness and God's design there. Now, you've written so many things in, in recent years, been quite a productive stretch and look forward to what you have to come. But one of the things you've written a lot about is creation. And I got to say, this is not an area where I excel, but what do I need to know about current apologetics related to creation? One thing is with respect to the design argument, teleological argument, the focus tends to be more upon the physical constants of the universe so as to bypass biological design altogether, uh, simply because it allows you to skate around the whole question of, of evolution. So that really is where kind of the cutting edge is there. So creation, because, you know, previously there were, there's all the battles about evolution, intelligent design versus evolution, and so that's that plays into the design argument. So a lot of apologists today, it, because... Not that you necessarily can't make the argument there. I think you can make a powerful design argument from biology, whether you believe in evolution or not. I think that's a powerful argument. But just, you don't even need to because the physical constants of the universe are so powerful a testimony already. To have a universe where evolution could happen itself is already a miracle. That's that's one sort of fact to think about out there. Beyond that, I would just say that The general approach I take is when I'm doing apologetics, I try not to get too specific about the different categories at the front end, because my concern is to present the Christian faith to someone. I would like for someone to accept Christ, you know, and then from that point, then we're going to have conversations about, to reference the other book, all the issues of theological triage, you know, We, we get to the second and third rank doctrines down the line. First, I just want them to say, to understand God is the creator, here's what sin is, here is who Christ is, here's how you need to respond to Christ. I want, kind of want to start there. So I don't actually get into the intricacies of creation at the apologetics mode, except for the kind of classical 
claims that the Christian faith has made, like creation from nothing, which are very relevant in the current moment, because you've got a lot of people who, for whom that, once again, is kind of a radical new idea. So, and that creation is contingent, and that there's one, God is necessary, everything else is contingent. That, that's, again, a classical Christian sort of instinct, and it's very relevant to the current moment, and again, I think has a lot of beauty to offer people. But I, I, I leave the, <laughs> the more feisty creation stuff for if the person asks about it, or once we've gotten down the road a little bit, and I've already had the chance to make the gospel very plain to them. That's just my own approach. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Jen Oshman's new book, Cultural Counterfeits, Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age and How We Were Made for So Much More. Oshman encourages you to reject the destructive idols of this world and instead experience real peace in Jesus. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off and a free copy of the ebook. Well, I want to ask you about three more uh, different areas and then I'll ask a couple questions just of how you wrestle with these things. But another area you describe as having a, uh, you, you describe actually love as a problem. You say love is a problem that must be accounted for in a naturalistic worldview. What makes a love love a problem in that worldview? Yes, I think this is the section of the book where I start off quoting uh, Frozen 2. <laughs> with, <laughs> just so everybody gets a sense of the depth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I like to, to lead off with my academic credentials, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I've I, uh, seen the movie many times. I do have a six-year-old daughter. Actually, as of today, she's seven. But, uh, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, this this when you have young kids, this kind of stuff is around the house, you know. But I actually love the music. <laughs> and there's this one song that is very poignant. I mean, some of these children's movies, they actually have some deep themes. And, you know, that movie does explore this these interesting themes of permanence. You know, what is it that is actually permanent? And there's this feeling of this the changing seasons. But then there's the question of kind of what is permanent in the midst of that. And there's just the scene where Olaf is about to melt away and he says, I thought of something permanent. And the other character says, what is that? And he says, love. Now, I remember when I watched that scene that related to many other times in my life I've thought about this, that, that actually is a really interesting philosophical question. Is love permanent? Uh, we hear that theme over and over in the arts, in music. You know, how many songs express this feeling of I will love you forever? And, and uh, it, it really is a, a question that, you know, that's all you need to then get into the philosophy of it. And then once you're into that, you know, you, again, as you look down the road on naturalism, you don't have to look very far before you start to realize, uh-oh, <laughs> love doesn't uh, have the same intuitive transcendent significance that I thought, because once again, it, it becomes an illusion. It's a survival tactic. Uh, we feel love because it helps... It, it, it helped our ancestors survive. And that's An evolutionary why adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing more to it than that. So, and that's, uh, again, it's a uh, very much a diminishing worldview to me. It's a very much a, a, a reducing worldview in terms of these, you know, what is it that even makes life worth living? Uh, I think all of us have this intuitive sense that love really matters. The way we feel about our families really matters. And it's there's more to it than that. And naturalism cuts that to the core. And so then I just propose, look at the 
look at Christian theism as an alternative, and I make the case that both intellectually but also existentially, this is just a better alternative. And it, the, the vision of love in that worldview is enchanting to the extreme. Love is at the core of reality. Between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, love is more real than, than time and space itself. Love generated the world. Love will, will last forever in a literal sense. And so I'm just trying to help the reader feel the, the, what's at stake there and how different these are. Let's cover justice then as well. How does our intuition for justice make the case for God? I'm thinking here about a really provocative comment in your book on the difference millions of years from now between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. This is another one of those look-down-the-road thought experiments where we have a sense that moral accomplishment matters. We have a sense in our hearts that, you know, this is why, and I'm drawing attention to the movies that we watch, and by extension, the stories we tell in other forms as well, and how they all have the same basic plot line, you know? It's always good and evil, uh, and almost always good wins in the end. And so it raises that question of why is that, that plot line so in the human heart that we just instinctively tell stories like that over and over? And Tolkien has his answer. He says this is because we're made in the image of God, and he sees that capacity as a huge part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And then again, <laughs> it, you know, it sounds like a broken record here, but you look down the road on a naturalistic worldview and you realize that's an illusion too. And so essentially moral accomplishment won't matter because it, you know, it can matter in the short term, but ultimately if you just wait long enough, no biological life will be around. So all moral accomplishment and the memory or consequence of all moral accomplishment will ultimately flatten out in the end. It has only a finite good. And in a theistic worldview, it, it opens up the categories and it enables you to see moral accomplishment as actually having an impact that goes beyond this life. And I think there's something in the human heart that, that longs for that and recognizes that. I don't think someone needs to be a Christian to have the longing for that. I was just thinking yesterday as I was doing apologetics about the movie Gladiator, which already has come out 22 years ago, which is mind-boggling to me. But, you know, it's, it's one example of where the longing for the afterlife is just all throughout the movie, you know. It's this recurrent theme, and, and you just have to ask, you know, where does that longing come from? And again, looking down the road on naturalism, um, it really has a pretty bleak prospect with respect to justice. All right, Gavin, I'm going to get over my skis here. I'm speculating on something that I'm just working out in real time. So as I'm thinking with you on that answer, I'm wondering, is it a human intuition or is it an intuition of justice that has been shaped specifically by the influence of Christianity and more broadly uh, Judaism as well over the last couple um, thousand, well, more than that uh, time. The reason I ask is because I was recently reading a book about, about the Vikings and their mythologies, which, and of course, studied back in seminary, ancient Near Eastern mythologies, look at the Romans, the Greeks. Is there a sense that good and evil are in, in contrast in those situations or that good prevails? It seems like there's much more chaos and the gods are not expected to be moral. They're not expected to be good. They're, they tend to be mixed bags there. So I don't think it diminishes your argument at all. And maybe you're still right. You probably are. I'm just trying to process this saying, is that something people have always thought? Because I'm just not sure that 
non-Jewish, non-Christian mythologies actually do have those expectations. But put me in my place. Well, let me give a general answer here, because I don't have enough historical knowledge to be able to kind of pinpoint exactly well the vikings are here and you know the yeah but but what i would say is that i think my sense is a, a moral instinct of some kind is universal throughout human cultures um you know c.s lewis has these passages where he says you know the way courage is understood can differ from one culture to another, but no culture praises cowardice. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, that's a good that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's a bandwidth here of of um, everybody's got a moral instinct. Even the Vikings have some things that they're saying they're not they're are right and wrong that they commend and that they don't commend. Absolutely. But then the particular understanding and shaping of that conscience. I mean, this is where Tom Holland and so many others have done such helpful work in seeing the powerful influence of the Christian tradition upon the shaping of that. So I, I want to fully emphasize that, the, the importance of that insight. Um, but I think the argument still works because the argument is simply saying objective morality, not necessarily a Christian ethic of compassion. Well, I think, I think that makes sense. And I think both of them work. Both of them can work apologetically in complementary ways that there is a moral intuition, but the specific kind of storytelling intuition of justice with good prevailing is a Judeo-Christian uh, sense that has, been in, that has been universalized, essentially, across much of the world. I think part of what I'm trying to get at as well is that the sense of time that we take for granted now is very much a Jewish-Christian concept, and Islam adopts some of that as well, of course, coming later, but it's not necessarily the same as what Hindus or Buddhists or others would hold in terms of their views of time and progress. And so I think what I was trying to get at is that the storytelling we have is probably more Christian and Jewish uh, than we probably are willing to acknowledge, even in, in Frozen 2. All right, I want to get to a couple of personal questions here. So when I teach uh, apologetics at, at Beeson Divinity School, my final project is I ask the students to write a sermon that incorporates the hardest objection to Christianity. So I'm going to ask you, Gavin, uh, what is the most compelling and uh, challenging criticism um, of Christianity that you have read or watched or um, even debated over? And this could be either just an idea that you see a lot of places, or it could be a person, a particular writer, past or present, who you find like, ooh, those are the best arguments I see against what I'm trying to do in this book. I'm going to go back to Dostoevsky, <laughs> who himself is a believer, and yet I think <laughs> gave the best argument of the unbeliever as a believer, which is really interesting. But his, his, the, the articulations of the problem of evil in his novels by, particularly I'm thinking of Ivan Karamazov, are so heartrending and so gripping and so dreadful. You almost have this sense of, boy, is this what Dostoevsky believes, you know, because it's so, (laughs) it's articulated with so much um, poignant feeling. And he focuses on the suffering of children in those speeches. And his own son, Dostoevsky's own son, who was three years old, died while he's writing that book. So you have this feeling of he's not a unsympathetic, you know, he, he's not the kind of person who can't understand this point of view, um, is my sense. But ultimately, the whole plot of the book undermines Yvonne's perspective, and the, the hero is the believer, Alyosha. So I 
find, kind of stemming from that, I would say the problem of evil and its many manifestations is not to be dismissed lightly. It's a real challenge. And as you said earlier, it's a challenge for us all. But it's, you know, it, it's, it's not a, a light and easy thing to shrug off. If there's any encouragement I have for Christians seeking to do apologetics in relation to that, it's just a, a, a caution not to be a triumphalistic in denouncing that or giving a too quick and easy answer. Well, and of course, what is Dostoevsky's response? It is, comes in the Grand Inquisitor scene. It comes from Jesus on the witness stand. And it comes from before the accuser, the accuser being the church, ironically, in that setup. It comes with the kiss. The kiss of, of, of kindness and peace and love from the Savior. And so, oddly enough, as I was reading your book, and as far as I know, Gavin, we did not compare notes on any of this. Uh, the sermon that I deliver, I, I gave it in, in Copenhagen uh, last fall, and then I delivered it also in class, is for my own, kind of fulfilling my assignment, what I do is I take that scene from Dostoevsky, I juxtapose it with Elie Wiesel's Loss of Faith from Night, which you also do in your book, and then I take it from there. Um, where I end up is then I go to Isaiah 53 in the end. And essentially, I think that's the Jesus from the Grand Inquisitor that that Dostoevsky is channeling, is the, the one who suffers for love um, without a response, essentially. And I, and I leave it there that no matter what we might say, if anybody understands the suffering of the innocent child— how could it not be our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, whatever the and, and the response is one of of understanding, sympathetic love, a love that will never fail. Um, which is then I, I go back into your argument there of of what other hope do you have of a love that will never end, a love for God, for His this 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 new heavens and this new earth, your loved ones. This is your only hope. So anyway, I, I just thought it was amazing. I was reading your book a little bit before Christmas, and I thought, I don't think Gavin and I have compared notes on this, but it was amazing. Yeah. So great minds think anyway, alike. It's right? really cool. <laughs> if we don't say so ourselves. Um, <laughs> all right, one last one one last personal question, Gavin. Um, I mean, y- y- we started off with this being a very personal project. Has anything ever shaken your faith before? Well, I think I reference this at least obliquely kind of in the book, and I've talked a lot about it in different interviews. I've had two seasons of what I call angst. I use the word angst because it really, the word, when you say doubts, that connotes something a little more intellectual and, and full-throated. This was just more just kind of, there's this sense of worry and kind of like, oh, you know, and, uh, one was in college, one was more recent, where before writing this book, we're just kind of working through things, you know. Anyone listening to this who's ever been mistreated in a church context or disillusioned in a church context knows yeah. those feelings can be very powerful. Um, when you're in a setting when then you're kind of asking, wait a second, you know, it's like if one person lets you down and then you're wondering about the other person, that kind of feeling where you're kind of questioning, like, have I been duped in any way and those kinds of questions. And it never rose so high as to create, go into the category of what I'd call doubts, but that angst. And uh, apologetics has been such a resource for me. I'm just, you know, going back to these arguments, and as I do it in my own way in this book, seeing the implications of each side, 
has been to me kind of like when you're walking up a steep staircase and you've got a handrail on the side you can grab a hold of to steady yourself. That's just how apologetics has functioned for me. Um, not that it makes me believe, but it's almost a sense of nourishment and strength in the process of when you're working through things. Because at the end of the day, God makes so much sense, you know? It looks like our world started. It looks like our world is well-ordered and designed and put together. It looks like, and then you think about our own human experience and what, you'd, what I'd have to swallow if I didn't believe in God. And I just think it's helpful to see that and see the force of these arguments. Um, and that's just helped me so much. So my hope for my book is anybody else who's going through something like that, and I anticipate actually right now, I feel like probably a lot of people are, that it could be a help to them like that and help them think through the implications, but also just help them see what a powerful and what a happy explanation God is for the world we live in. My wife and I were just talking this last weekend about our, how much we love sports, and we were talking about how one of the dangers of somebody who's a, a, fa- a fervent fan of a team is that when they're watching the game, they think everything that happens, good or bad, is because of their side. Their player did this, their player, and like the only side that apparently has agency is their team, their coaches, their players. You don't even think about the other team. And it made me think of what you're saying here about apologetics, that when you're a Christian, you're in a Christian context, sometimes you become very focused on the problems of your team, the problems of, with your faith, the problem, the arguments against what you believe, but you don't necessarily think about alternatives. What do I have to believe if I drop this? And so it's easy to leave, but hard to find a new home. And so I think if we can encourage people to doubt in contexts where that doubt can be met with compassion and answers and help from other Christians, it'll ultimately make their faith stronger, as opposed to a context where they'll just think, oh, I'm the only person thinking about these problems. I'm the only one who realizes them, and so I have to leave. Um, So I would commend uh, to anybody listening, and maybe you know somebody in your life, go and check out uh, Gavin Ortland's book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism. It's new from Baker Academic. Real quick here, Gavin, final three. How do you find calm in the storm? I love coming home to play with my kids. They're out, they're waiting for me at the door with Nerf guns most days, <laughs> ready to take dad down, you know, and, and whatever, whatever the newspapers are saying and whatever other stress there may be, to play with a four-year-old boy who does no inhibition in his laughter, to hug a six-year-old, now seven-year-old girl, and so forth. There's this sort of comfort and refuge in in loving my kids and investing in them. That's great. I love that. Second question, where do you find good news today? I often am deeply encouraged when I think about just ordinary Christians remaining faithful at their posts. You know, I think about a guy that just came back on our elder council right now who, you know, been through a lot of different things in his life, but he's retained his joy. He's retained his focus upon the Lord. He's not a famous Christian but he's a faithful Christian. And I am often encouraged at remembering God is sustaining his people in all kinds of ways that we can't see because they'll never make the newspaper, but he's growing his kingdom. And that's, you know, that's how the kingdom often grows is kind of in the margins and away from human pride and human visibility and just knowing that God is doing that. And when you see the evidences of that, it's often just a helpful counterbalance to where we 
often are interpreting the world through social media and through the news, and we just see certain things more through those windows. And so remembering that's not the whole story, that helps me a lot. Amen. Last question. What's the last great book you've read? The one that just popped into my mind, and I, you can help me pronounce his last name. Is it Glenn Scrivener? Am I saying that? Yeah, Scrivener. Scrivener, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, he wrote a book that is kind of a more popular level expression of Tom Holland's argument that we referenced. It's basically just saying, you know, we, we value things like justice and compassion and so forth to a large degree from the influence of the history of Christianity. And uh, it was really well done, and it was very accessible and uh, you know easy to read. Lots of lots of pop culture references. Shorter. It's forthcoming, so people could look out for that. But he was asking me to write a blurb, and I was honored to do that. But it was uh, just an excellent book. So that's the first one that just popped into my mind. I wrote an endorsement for that one as well. Glenn, if you're out there listening future guest on Gospel Bound. Be ready. (laughs) (laughs) My guest this week has been been Gavin Ortland. Check out his book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism. Gavin, thanks so much for joining me on Gospel Bound. Hey, thanks for having me, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Thank you.